And uh, I want to prepare you this morning. Because I think, I think, of the seven statements of Jesus from the cross, this is more than likely the deepest one. And it's the most difficult one to understand. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to help me communicate it well and you to listen and to incorporate it well in your life. So let me pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus. Lord, may our gratitude and our thankfulness and our understanding deepen for the Son of God. Lord, help us with this sermon. This is deep, deep water. And Lord, we need the Spirit of God to guide us into all truth. And we need to hold fast to your word, which is your full and whole counsel for living. Lord, may we hold fast to that, exalt Jesus Christ, and look deeply and accurately at your word. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine somewhere in the universe, there is an ocean that dwarfs all of our oceans on earth combined. It's that big. But it's not filled with water. Now listen, this is where you've got to get into this sermon immediately. It's not filled with water. It's filled with the accumulation of all humanity's sin. All of the gluttony, all of that lust, all of that pornography, all of the adultery, all of the lying and the gossip and the stealing, all of it flows in creeks and brooks and rivers and tributaries to empty into this ocean. The ocean is the final destination of all sin. Picture in your mind how big that ocean must be. Now zoom in a little bit into the actual ocean itself. Because floating, floating in that ocean somewhere are two drops, two sins. One is Adam's and one is Eve's. And Adam and Eve's sins had the power, the devastating power, to shatter the image of God in humanity. You want to know how powerful sin is? It shattered the image of God. It's still there. You and I still bear the image of God, the Bible says, but it's broken. It's distorted. It's a poor reflection of what it used to be. It's shattered. And not only did it shatter for Adam and Eve, it shattered the image of God in every single human being that will ever be born after them, billions and billions. And not only did it shatter the image of God and man, listen, their sins, those two drops of sin and the unimaginable quantity in this ocean, just those two drops had the power, the devastating power to break the fabric of creation. So now we've got killer avalanches. And now we have tsunamis and hurricanes and mudslides in third world countries that kill 
and drop buses off of the cliffs. Now we've got all of this pain and death and we've got the groaning, the Bible says, of all creation as it waits eagerly for redemption where Jesus will make it whole again. All of nature groans because those two drops of sin broke it. Now listen. If those two drops of sin had that devastating power, can you imagine the power of an ocean of the size of which I asked you to imagine the power that that has, how horrible it is to God. Did you sin this last week? Did you have a thought that was displeasing to the Lord that you did not take captive? Did you have something you should have done good, but you did not do? Did you lust this week and did you lie this week and did you swear this week and did you take God's name in vain this week? Did in your heart you steal God's glory this week? Listen, I could go on and on, but all of us have sinned this last week and they've all flowed into this ocean. And this ocean of vast, uncountable quantity... This ocean fit into the palm of God the Father's hands. Isaiah says all the oceans fit into his hands, his hand. It fit into the palm of God's hands. And on Friday afternoon of Golgotha at noon, he began to pour it onto the head of his son. We've seen the incredible mercy of Jesus in his first statement, and our hearts, I think, responded with deep relief. He is a forgiving God. How amazing is his mercy. And then we saw in the second statement the power that he has to save us who are the worst sinners imaginable. If a criminal who is reviling him one minute and praising him the next could be saved, who could possibly not be saved? And then last week we saw his deep love for his mother. And his deep love for his mother is eclipsed. It's dwarfed by his love for his own spiritual family. You and I, if you're in Christ, are so deeply loved by God. He was thinking of us from the cross and providing for us. But today in this fourth statement, we're going to see the awful spiritual agony that Jesus Christ suffered as he stood in our place and God began to pour the ocean of those sins onto his head. Friends, the fourth statement that Jesus made from the cross is a cry of pain and anguish. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Martin Luther, Martin Luther himself said of this statement, God forsaking God, who can possibly understand that? These are deep waters. In fact, I'm going to suggest they may be the deepest water in scriptures. Possibly even deeper than the triune God. Or the doctrine of that. 
Who can possibly understand it? Well, I'm no exception. As I studied all week for this, I'm pretty sure I just went below the surface. These are deep, deep waters. But let me give you what I found. And I'm going to give it to you in four different perspectives. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? First of all, first of all, this was a personal cry. This was a personal cry of anguish. And let me take you deeper into that. Every year, on the 10th of Nisan, Jewish fathers would go out to their flocks of lambs. And so let's get into that story. Men, you're a Jewish father, and you're living at the time of Christ, and it's now the 10th of Nisan, and that morning you go out to your flocks, and if you don't own flocks, you go, and you go purchase a lamb from those who do. You go out to your flocks, and you select a lamb that's going to be sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, which is Passover day. You have to select it on the 10th. You sacrifice it on the 14th. And you just don't take any lamb. By the way, those Jewish lambs were very small. You don't just take any lamb. You've got to have the best. You search and you search until you find a spotless, undefiled, unblemished lamb. And once you select that lamb, you bring that lamb into your family to live like a pet. That's done on the 10th of Nisan. And that lamb sleeps in your home at night. Before that, always out in the fields. But on the 10th, he sleeps. It sleeps in your home at night. It plays with your children like a dog. When you walk around, fathers, it's often seen in that day and age that the lamb is on your shoulders as you walk around. Because what they were doing was they were forming a personal connection with the lamb so that when it was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, they would feel the responsibility and the weight that something innocent had to die for us. And it would grieve their hearts. Their children would often cry. Yet never was there a personal connection like that which we see between God the Father and His spotless Lamb of God, Jesus His Son. Nobody ever had a personal connection like that to the sacrificial Lamb. And it's in this statement that we begin to see the personal cry of anguish as Matthew records, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means it's translated, My God... My God, why have you forsaken me? And friends, for the first time in all of the Gospels, and the only time, Jesus refers to his Father by the name God. Never seen it before. My God, personal pronoun. My God, why have you forsaken me? This was a personal cry of pain and anguish. But you know, it's amazing. It's amazing. And it's sad what people will try to do when they get to the deep mysteries of the Bible. They begin to twist and distort. Some people, it started with the Gnostics, which were in force way before the New Testament was written. Paul battled them in Colossians. It started with Gnostic theology. Here's what Gnostic theology taught. By the way, it's still alive today. 
that Jesus, the human being, became God at his baptism. The Holy Spirit, like a dove, came down and the divine entered the human there. And that when he was put onto the cross, the divine left the human because God cannot die. And so Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Gnostics believe that's when God left him and now it's just human Jesus on the cross. Others explain that the father could not bear any longer the sight of his son's suffering. And he turned away from his son in utter revulsion. That's how they explain, how could God forsake God? And still others insist that the the father could, could never forsake the son. That Jesus only felt forsaken. This was a psychological cry. It really wasn't grounded in reality. He was, he felt forsaken. And now he can better sympathize as our high priest with us who don't you feel sometimes God has left you when you suffer? Friends, listen, if Jesus Christ was not forsaken by his father, then no atonement for our sins could have possibly occurred because forsakenness is the penalty for sin that God himself established. He was utterly forsaken. He never ceased to be fully man and fully God. In fact, even today and on into eternity, Jesus Christ will be fully man and fully God. He was a son of God. He was crying out to his father. And what we see was a very personal and pain-filled cry. So let me turn it just a little bit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This was a pain-filled cry. Not just personal. It was personal, my God, but now it's, we're going to see that it's a pain-filled cry. Do you remember Israel who is in bondage to Egypt? They're slaves in Egypt in the Exodus story. And they cried out for help, and God heard them, and he remembered them, and he saw their plight, and he knew them and he acted to free them and he brings them out of Egypt and then they he brings them to the edge of the Red Sea and they're trapped by an impassable amount of water and they got coming up on their heels is the full might of Pharaoh's army ready to destroy them utterly to the last child And again, they cry out to the Lord, and again, the Lord powerfully saves them. And all through, listen, all through the Old Testament, God hears the cries of his repentant people. He hears their cries, and he always answers. God will not turn a deaf ear to the cry of his repentant people. Yet here we come to the cross and his own son says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he's met with utter silence. You know, last year, Denise, my wife and three of our older kids slept outside in our camper. We We'll often do that. It's parked right next to our house, and we'll often sleep outside in the camper. And on that night, Andrew, our little then five-year-old, was sick. So he slept inside with me in our bed. Denise and the three kids out in the camper, Andy and I in, in our bed, and all of a sudden, a really terrible thunderstorm came through in the middle of the night. 
And in the midst of a cacophony of thunders and flashes of lightning, all of a sudden, Andy, who was sound asleep, wakes up, at least I think he woke up, and took his hand and searched through the bed until he found my arm. And once he found my arm, he went right back to sleep holding my arm. He needed to know that his daddy was right there in the midst of this storm. Yet we see Jesus, here's the son, who reaches out symbolically to his father, but his hand cannot find him. This is a pain-filled cry. And look what Matthew writes in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Now, friends, let's gain a little bit of a background. Our day, our day begins one second after midnight. But that's not true for the Galilean Jews. The Galilean Jews reckoned their day from sunup, 6 a.m., to sunup, their 24-hour period. Their day began at 6 a.m. in the morning. So at the sixth hour, it's noon. And at the ninth hour, it's three o'clock in the afternoon. It's at the third hour that Jesus is put on the cross. It's at the sixth hour, Matthew says, that darkness came all over the land. It's at the ninth hour that the Gospels will tell us that Jesus dies. Now listen, the darkness... The darkness, it was prophesied. It was prophesied hundreds of years before this even occurred. Here's what Amos says about that day. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon. Listen, if you've ever, ever doubted the infallibility and the inspiration of the Old Testament, there are countless examples to firm up your faith. I will make The sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. Well, maybe that's not referring to this. Well, look what Amos says. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. This is all about that Friday on Golgotha. This is all about the death of Jesus Christ. So some people refusing to acknowledge the supernatural hand of God, some go to a naturalistic explanation. Well, this is an eclipse. Just happen to have an eclipse at noon. Friends, you cannot have an eclipse at full moon, and the Jews always celebrated the Passover at full moon. Even if you could have an eclipse, they last but minutes. This one lasted for three hours, from noon until three, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. There's a better explanation. And darkness in Scripture is almost uniformly symbolic of the judgment of God. It's the judgment of God being poured out on His Son who at noon began to receive the ocean of our sins, that vast unimaginable quantity that all of our sins find their way to, began to pour that onto the head of His Son at noon and darkness lasted until three. For three hours... Noon until this moment, by the way, this cry, this cry of being forsaken did not occur at noon. It occurred just minutes before three o'clock. And you've got four statements of Jesus in rapid succession, one after another. This is Jesus from noon until three receiving from God, his father. Listen, 
what the Jewish fathers would have done with that lamb that they had selected on the 14th of Nisan. You know what they would have done? They would have taken that lamb up into the temple. They would have mounted those 15 steps, probably carrying their lamb. They were allowed two men to go in, so maybe a father and the eldest son. And they would go into the right to the edge of the court of the priest where there was a railing. And all of these men gathered around these, this railing with their lambs, one after another, and the priest would give the fathers the green light, and the fathers would take their hands, and they would press the hands on the heads of that, those lambs hard. What they were doing is symbolically taking their sins, his sins and the sins of his family, and pressing them into that innocent lamb. Because something innocent has to die for sinners. For three hours, the Holy Father is pressing the sins of that ocean into the soul of his own son, pouring out that vast quantity onto Jesus, the innocent one who took our guilt upon himself. And on that darkened Friday, the unbroken, perfect, and eternal fellowship between the Father and the Son was broken for the first time ever because our sins breached their fellowship. Listen, this is the cup. This is the cup that Jesus had glimpsed in the garden just hours before. Excuse me, just hours before this happened. Don't you remember he was so stressed about what he was about to face that it burst his capillaries inside of his body and the blood leaked out of those capillaries and and the pressure squeezed them through his sweat pores so that he sweated out drops of blood that's hematidosis. It's a live medical condition and extreme stress. What was the cup that he saw? Listen, friends, don't believe for a second that he was shrinking from crucifixion. Thousands of Christians have died from crucifixion. Thousands of Christians have died in the worst ways. Tradition says that Isaiah the prophet was hiding from the wicked king when when they found him in the hollow of a tree and they took a saw and sawed the tree down with Isaiah inside of it, cutting him in two. This is the reference that people believe in Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith where some were sawn in two. People have always been dying. Christians have always been dying in the worst way. You've got Nero after the time of Christ who hated Christians. And he took Christians and he crucified them upside down, coated them in tar, and lit them on fire to be able to light his festive parties. That's documented in history. Are we really to believe that those who met such cruel fate, death with unspeakable joy could have met that with that joy while the captain of their souls shrinks in fear. He wasn't fearing the crucifixion. What he was shrinking from in that garden was the ocean of sin that was going to be poured out onto his head and the wrath and the judgment of the Father on our behalf directed to the Son. That's what he was shrinking from. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? was a personal cry. It was a pain-filled cry. But friends, 
It was a prophetic cry. Let me turn that just a little bit more and look at it from a different angle. Haven't you ever been curious as to why this is in the form of a question? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Don't you think he would have said, my God, my God, you have forsaken me. Why does he ask it in a question? Does he forget why he came to earth? This was the plan that God had established before creation. He knew that he was going to be crucified. He knew that he was going to take the sins of the world, that he was going to provide atonement. Well, did he, did he have a moment of doubt? There's a better explanation and I want you to now think you're no longer the father taking your lamb to the temple. Now you're all, along with me, near the cross and you hear this cry. You're there. You're on Golgotha. And you hear this forsaken agony of Christ. And you're listening. And all of a sudden you hear him say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And like the rabbis would do, let me remind you something really quick. The Bibles were scrolls. The average person didn't possess one. They were too expensive. And the average person couldn't read Hebrew. They couldn't read the Old Testament. And none of the scrolls had numbers for their books, their chapters, and their verses. No rabbi ever said, what I'm about to say to you, turn to Psalm 22 and let's look at verse 1. They didn't have numbers. And the average person had no scroll. And so what the rabbis would do when they were teaching is they would recite the first lines of a, an Old Testament text. And when they began to recite those lines, all of that oral teaching, all of that tradition of transmitting the law of God, all of that would come back to the hearers. Oh, he's talking about David's psalm because that's exactly what David wrote. He wrote, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in verse 1 of chapter 22? And now all of the people, you and I, all of those gathered around that cross, hearing this cry, all of us now are brought into Psalm 22. And let me read to you a little bit of an excerpt of Psalm 22, written 1,000 years before Christ lived by King David. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This is exactly and precisely the scene on Golgotha. And David goes on. I am poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. This is the way Jesus cried when they died, when they shoved that spear through his lung and into his heart. What came out was a mixture of water and blood. His heart burst and his lungs filled with water. He literally drowned to death on the cross. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue sticks to my jaws. You'll see that next week. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. That's crucifixion. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This was written 1,000 years before Jesus died. 
And it all begins with verse 1 where David cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did Jesus put this? And the, and the way that he did on the cross, it was to bring all of those hearing into Psalm 22 and to say this, I am who David was talking about. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the one that you've been waiting for. This was a prophetic cry. But let me turn one more angle. And this is the final one. Not only was this a personal cry, not only was it a pain-filled cry, not only was it a prophetic cry, but it was a cry of punishment. It was a cry of punishment. Parents, can you imagine for a moment? Grandparents too. That little boy, that little girl and your family is playing, and he or she falls down and scrapes. The knees are open and they're bloody. They're crying, and they look at you with tears coming down their faces, and they reach their hands up to you, and you turn around and look away. Can you imagine, even on that scale, how horrible that would be? Now multiply that by infinity and you've got the cosmic impact of the words of Isaiah in chapter 53, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some say it was the pleasure of God to crush his son. How do you make sense out of that when none of us earthly parents would turn away from our hurting children. And we need to immediately begin to understand the Father, the Holy Father found no gleeful pleasure in pouring out His wrath onto His Son and turning away. Listen, he found, it was the will of the Lord to crush Him because there just was no other means they had the power to put away sin. It was only the death of the perfect Lamb of God that could make atonement for that ocean of sin that we've all contributed to. And again, it moves us back to Psalm 22 to find the answer. Again, why did Jesus put this in the form of a question? Why did he say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, because when you ask a question, you look for an answer. And David gave the answer to the question in that very psalm. You find it when you get to verse 3. It's three words long. He says this, why have you been forsaken? It's because God, you are Holy. God, you are holy. That's why I've been forsaken. Because God's holiness and God's purity moved him to forsake, listen, his sin-bearing, filth-ridden son. But we need to know what the holiness of God is. But listen, if I try to define it for you, I'm going to reduce it. Holiness is something by that I can give you the, I'll give you the definition of it, but you're going to find it doesn't fill your heart with praise and awe. 
Here's the definition. It's the sinless perfection of God. It's his separateness from sin. It's his devotion to his own honor and glory. Well, are you really now equipped to better worship God? Are you filled with a resonance that says, God, you are holy and I love you? It really doesn't tend to do that. Friends, the Bible never answers or defines what God's holiness is. Even though holiness of God is central and weaves its way through the entire Bible, it never tries to define it because holiness is reduced by earthly definitions and it's magnified by its illustrations and demonstrations. So let's demonstrate holiness from the Word of God. You remember Moses? Who came out in that desert, that wilderness, and to see why this bush, why this bush is on fire. And it's not burning up. Listen, fires were dangerous back then. They didn't have Forks Township fire departments that can make it to Paxanosa Ridge in 15 minutes to put out brush fires. They were dangerous. It captured his eye. Am I in danger? Are my shepherds in danger? Are my sheep in danger? Let me go investigate. And he's looking and it's not burning up and he draws near to see what's going on and all of a sudden the voice comes out of the bush and it says, Moses, take off your sandals for you're standing on holy ground. It's an illustration of holiness. And all of a sudden we fast forward. Moses is leading Israel. They've set up camp. And God instructs the people in what we would find kind of a crass way. He says to the people of Israel, take your excrement, go out and dig a hole, bury it and cover it. Because I, your God, am holy and I walk around in your midst. God doesn't want anything that represents filth and moral depravity in his presence whatever symbolizes filth has to be put away or God will not be present and nothing nothing was as filthy to God as sin God is so holy that no human being can look on him and live even the seraphim the seraphim who are the most or are incredibly powerful angels their job their job is to attend to God they stay in his presence and they fly around his throne and they have six wings and even the seraphim who are in the presence of holy holy God God eternally cover their faces with two of their wings. They cannot look on the glorious, holy God. Because in him is pure light with no stain or darkness. Just a glimpse, just a glimpse of God's holiness made Abraham cry out, I am dust I am but dust and ashes. Job, who out of the thunderstorm heard God and a veiled glimpse of God in the flashes of his holy light, Job confessed to God these words, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, who saw that vision of the holy, holy, holy God on his throne, he cried out, Woe is me! I am a man of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You've got David, the prophet, who saw a glimpse of God and he confessed to God, There's no more strength left in me. I have no strength. You've reduced me to nothing. 
Over and over, God's holiness is so unimaginably overwhelming and absolutely incompatible with anything and anyone that is morally unclean. Habakkuk says this, You who are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong. That's holiness. In the face of God, his eyes so pure that they could not look on the sin-bearing Son, Jesus Christ. God's face turned away from noon until just about 3 o'clock. Friends, God's too holy to ever bless sin. And when that ocean of guilt was poured out onto Jesus, he turned away. And the Jews understand and understood something that we've too often let go. The Jews understood that God's blessing meant that his face was turned toward his people. That's the reason for the priestly prayer that you're looking at in number six. It's the face of God toward his people that blesses his people. But the opposite of being blessed was to be cursed. And when you were cursed by God, it means that his face turned away from you. That's why murderous Cain, who killed his brother Abel, said to God when he received God's judgment, he said, from your face I shall be hidden because God's holiness is too pure to look on evil. He always looks away from sin. And we get back to Golgotha on Friday afternoon and we see Jesus Christ nailed to the cross as our sin bearer in the words of Paul and Galatians begins to filter through our minds. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because what God had done was he poured out that ocean of filth of our sins upon his son and he looked away and the darkness of his judgment fell at noon. What Luke wrote, the sun's light failed and friends the darkness did not come at noon to hide Jesus from the eyes of those who were there and looking on listen the darkness came to hide the sin bearing son from his holy father who could not look on him that's the shroud of darkness and his heavenly father turned away from his son who had become the curse for us. And he forsook his own son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was a cry of punishment simply because the full fury and pain of hell itself was poured out on the God forsaken son of God, Jesus Christ. Can you imagine that? Listen, to be the the most God-forsaken place that you'll ever hear about is hell. And it's the place of God's curse. And when he poured that ocean of guilt down upon that son who was innocent, who committed not one of these crimes, yet bore the guilt and took the, the charge of guilt on our behalf, when he poured that out on his son, all of the God-forsaken fury of hell came onto Jesus. He experienced the torment of hell. 
know, the worst thing about hell is not the darkness, the perpetual darkness. It's not the eternal fiery pain. Friends, infinitely worse. The worst thing about hell, listen, it's the eternally God-forsaken, cursed place. And it never ends. And what we see in this cry of personal pain, prophetic utterance, and punishment, what we see in this cry is that Jesus, listen, this is, this is so important. Jesus was forsaken so that you might never be forsaken. And Jesus was abandoned by the Father so that you would never have to be abandoned. He was deserted so that you'll never be deserted. He was forgotten so that you won't ever be forgotten. He experienced hell so that you don't ever have to. Listen, if you one day stand before Jesus the judge and hear the most awful words you'll ever hear, depart from me, you evildoer, I never knew you, and you go to hell, it will be by no one's fault but your own because Jesus went to hell for you. And he took this sin so you don't have to. Now if I ended it here, we'd all jump off a bridge together. And you can't end it here. Because the good news always has to be with the bad news. The bad news is this. All of the ocean of our sin was poured on the Son. Who did nothing wrong. But the good news, at least in part, is this. Jesus and David, friends, they weren't the only ones to cry out in forsaken pain. The entire people of Israel did in Isaiah chapter 49. The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. And again, they're prophetically pointing forward to the Son of God's voice from the cross. And God, listen, this is so profound. God answers them in Isaiah 49. But not Yahweh, not Elohim. Jesus Christ made an appearance in the Old Testament. And it's the angel of the Lord that answers them. The one who will be forsaken by God. And he says this to Israel, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget. The answer is yes, sometimes it happens. And Jesus says, says yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. That's crucifixion. All Jesus ever has to do is look down at his palms with the scars and remember as if he could ever forget that you are his. He cannot forsake you. He will not forsake you. He will not forget you. And neither did God the Father forget his son for very long. Because the very final thing that Jesus will say seconds before he dies are these words. With a loud voice he said, Father. Not God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus died, friends, not in forsaken pain. He died in his Father's loving embrace. And the father might have turned his face away from the son for a while, but he did not forget him. He came and he was there and he was receiving the spirit of Jesus when he died. 
And neither will God forget you. He has engraved you on his palms. If you have put your faith in him, he has sealed you with the spirit of God. He was forsaken so that we would never have to be. Would you close your eyes for a moment? As we close, close your eyes and let me ask you to think with me for a moment. I can tell you honestly, while your eyes are closed, I can tell you my greatest fear as a pastor. It's not that our church would split, although I would dread that. It's not that you would leave our church, although that I wouldn't want that. Here's my greatest fear. It drives me to preach the best I can and to preach the gospel. My greatest fear is that you could possibly somehow sit in this church week after week after week and hear about what Jesus has done and never really truly put your trust exclusively in the Son of God. That's my greatest fear, that one day under my preaching, you're going to stand before Jesus and hear those awful words, depart from me because I never knew you. That's my greatest fear. I pray all the time that the gospel will waken our eyes to the glory of God. You can sit under gospel preaching for years and a lifetime and never truly have your eyes opened. Maybe God's opening your eyes even this morning. If you this morning, and maybe there's no one here, that's fine. But please be honest, if this morning God has opened your eyes and you have realized that you have not yet really truly put your trust exclusively in the Son of God who was forsaken on your behalf, if you've realized that you've not yet committed your life to Jesus to follow him and to pick up that wretched cross, Would you just slip your hand up because that's all I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to pray for you. Just be honest and put your hand up in the air. I see that hand. And I see that hand. Are there other hands? Please be honest. Be brave. I see that hand. Are there others? For those who raise your hands, I'm going to pray for you. And let me tell you, please listen, there's no magical prayer. If there was, the Bible would have written it out for you. There's no special words that you need to say. You don't have to get it right in order for God to save you from hell and to give you eternal life. You don't need to know any words or formula. You just need to cry out to him whatever way you know how, and say, Jesus, you died for me so that I could live. And you took my sins so that I could be innocent. Would you save me? And would you give me eternal life and teach me how to be faithful to you? Let me pray for you, Lord, for those hands that went up. Father, I pray for my friends. I pray for them. Lord, let them rest in the knowledge that the Bible nowhere gives them some secret prayer that they've got to pray. There's just nothing like that. Salvation's meant to be simple. 
It's a cry of those who realize that they bear the penalty of their sins. Their sins have flowed into that ocean. It's the cry of those who know they're guilty, who cry out to Jesus who died for them and ask, Lord, for you to save them and to take away their sins and give them eternal life. That's all. Lord, would you help them to do that this morning? And teach them, Spirit of God, guide them into all truth. Teach them how to be faithful to you and to learn from you, to grow in the knowledge of their salvation, the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Teach them how to serve you. Lord, I pray for my friends who I hope have prayed that prayer, whatever prayer they have put from their lips of their heart. Seal them. With the Holy Spirit, Father, seal them into their salvation, which you promise. And you will not open it until the day of redemption when you come back for your people. Thank you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.